1: Welcome to the show. I'm Josh Hammer. And today we have the great Dave Rubin on with us. Dave is a former liberal turned into one of the most prominent conservative voices in America. And we're going to have a great discussion with him. But first, I want to tell you about something that should really have all of us worried, liberal and conservative alike. There is a horrible, horrible, horrible smear campaign going on trying to cancel, defame, throw under the bus and ultimately eradicate from the public square. That is what the woke left does when it comes to all of these kind of semi-public figures, ultimately trying to eradicate from the public square. A very good man who happens to be a very good personal friend of mine, I'm talking here about Ilya Shapiro, formerly of the Libertarian Cato Institute. He's the incoming executive director of Georgetown University Law Center's Center for the Constitution. Ilya and I are good friends. We went to the same law school. We are alumni of the Claremont Institute Fellowship Programs. We kind of hang out in all the same places. I mean, uh, you know, I, I consider him a, a, a good personal friend in real life and all of that here. And I was very happy when I heard that my other friend, Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law and some of the other faculty members there had decided to bring him on for this perch. He's, you know, Ilya is a, he's fundamentally a classical liberal. He is a, he is a libertarian. I don't agree with Ilya on a lot of things. In fact, we have actually done debates. We have debated both kind of for federal society chapters and in written form. We disagree about all sorts of stuff when it comes to kind of legal theory and interpreting the constitution. I would say I'm considerably to Ilya's right on various kind of policy and legal matters. But Ilya, nonetheless, apparently was a step way too far for the woke activists, the illiberal leftists who constitute the Georgetown University Law Center student body. And the specific nature of the quote-unquote controversy, and we're using scare quotes here because this is just ginned up, pure manufactured smear campaign outrage without any kind of a semblance of basis in reality, has to do with a tweet that Ilya Shapiro recently wrote about what was the topic of last week's monologue on the show, of course, which is President Joe Biden's noxious and outright evil identity politics-based promise to expressly nominate a black woman. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but obviously cabining and winnowing his search at the outset to replace the outgoing Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer to literally 2% of the national lawyer pool. So anyway, here's what Ilya Shapiro had to say about this. He said, quote, Objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid, progressive and very smart. He even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian Indian American, but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy. So we'll get lesser black women. Thank heaven for small favors. So. You listen to that tweet and, uh, you know, your first reaction can cut in any direction, I guess, depending on what your priors are. But maybe not the greatest worded tweet in the world. But the point he's making here is obviously a solid one. The clear and obvious point he's making is that this identity politics stuff is stupid. That even based on kind of the identity politics stuff to begin with, you've got a better pick. Sri Srinivasan as, as opposed to kind of Katanji Brown-Jackson, Leandra Kruger, whoever else is kind of being floated in there for contention for this pick here. So Ilya ends up quickly deleting the tweet and issuing a fairly robust apology. The upshot here is that the specific phrase, quote, lesser black woman, close quote, read in isolation, you know, I I, I guess can rile some people up. In the context of the tweet, obviously we know what he's saying here, guys. You have to be a willful, disingenuous, bad faith actor to read this tweet and think that Ilya Shapiro, a Cato Institute libertarian, has an ounce of animus in his bones whatsoever. Nonetheless, the smear campaign picked up steam. Long story short, they end up putting Ilya on paid administrative leave, pending an investigation to see what might happen next year. Obviously, the deck is stacked at the outset, and Dean Trainer's all-student-wide email to the Georgetown student body and faculty last week said that Ilya Shapiro's tweets, quote, are antithetical to the work that we do here every day to build inclusion, belonging, and respect for diversity. You know, uh, sure enough, even after he sent this email, obviously it wasn't enough for the student activists there. They had a cry-in session where Dean Trainer said he was quote appalled by the quote painful nature of the tweets. Here, guys, if you can't handle a Cato Institute libertarian, if that is a bridge too far from you, then what hope do the rest of us have? What hope to the kind of the cultural conservatives, kind of the America First movement, kind of the more nationalist populist movement? What? The heck, hope do we have here? But for now, we're really excited to bring on Dave Rubin of The Rubin Report. So we're going to take us to a quick commercial break. Stay with us, Dave Rubin on the other side. Dave Rubin welcome good seeing you brother long time no see my friend we literally were together we're recording this on Tuesday morning I think I saw you uh roughly nine hours ago or so your old pal Jordan Peterson was in town it was great to see you guys back in action together but I've been seeing you around a lot recently so you got to Florida what like a month month and a half ago or so how's it been so far you've you've talked a lot about how happy you are Has the has the the honeymoon phase rubbed off yet or not even close to that
0: No, it has not. If anything, I would say it's just begun, actually, because I finally got into my house just earlier this week and we're still under the deluge of boxes and all that stuff. And, you know, my team is here now. Everybody kind of moved in pieces. Uh, The last guy got here basically yesterday. So it feels like we're just at the beginning again. I, I had some good friends that hooked us up with a nice house that we could stay at for a bit. And everything's just been great. The amount of joy and positivity... And I'm meeting all of these people that are refugees from other places, mostly California, but some New York, New Jersey, you know, the usual, the usual hotspots. And everyone knows why they moved here and they're psyched to be part of this thing. So I am very, very clear when I've met my neighbors or I just, you know, someone says hi to me at Whole Foods or whatever, like I am here to keep Florida, Florida. And that is the plan. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to fight for all of the things that, you know, the people before me here, whether they're longtime Floridians or maybe they moved 10 years ago or whatever it is, Florida man knew something. He did know something. It wasn't just about wrestling alligators and I'm super psyched to be here. And as you mentioned, you know, we were at the Jordan Peterson show last night. It was my, my one reunion show with Jordan after touring with him throughout 2018, 2019. And I don't have to tell you, I mean, the, the energy in that room was just electric. The people are happy, to be out again and, you know, fighting the nonsense and the mandates and the lockdowns and all that stuff. And, and Florida is ground zero for freedom right now. So we got work to do.
1: You moved here from California. You lived in multiple blue states. So have I I lived in, you know, Chicago, Illinois, for God's sake. Why are more people not moving into like warmer, freer environments? I mean, we're seeing that a little bit in, like the U.S. census and like the congressional like reapportionment. But like, why is it not happening in the like an even greater scale?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it's a little hard to grade what would be like a true epic shift, right? Right. Like we've seen pretty massive numbers, actually. But, you know, we're in a country of almost 400 million people at this point. So when you see a couple hundred thousand leave California, on one hand, that's that's an awful lot of people. And, you know, depending on what they do for a living and what businesses they're part of and what organizations they're with and what their connections are, you know, you could lose a couple thousand people and it could be massive. You know, Joe Rogan leaving California is a major hit optics wise, it's not that he has a huge team of people, but in terms of the optics saying, hey, I can no longer live in Cali. I'm going to Texas. Elon Musk moving Tesla from California to Austin, Texas. Uh, You know, the Daily Wire guys, Ben Shapiro and all our buddies over there saying we're getting the hell out of L.A. We're going to move to Nashville. Ben went to Florida, you know, me getting out of there. And now we know there's so many other people in our circles. And I don't mean to make this just about conservative politics people per se, because there's just decent people right. who have just had it with the crime. They've had it with the education or lack thereof. They've had it with the drugs and the, you know, just all of the stuff. They've had it with all that. So I think we're seeing a ton of it. But as I said before, I'm, I'm psyched about meeting these refugees because there's always a, a fear by the natives. You know, there's a fear like, oh, here they come. They're going to come like locusts. We've still got something good. They've destroyed that ol- old thing over there that they're fleeing. And are they going to destroy this thing? And I don't sense it this time. I think something very obvious has happened in the
1: country. What is that, though? Like, like, let's try to like define that a little bit. Right. So I think in years
0: past and for the most of American history, you know, if you looked at things in sort of the traditional way of viewing things, so there's the right and there's the left, there's conservatives and there's liberals. There was a basic agreement that, you know, the founding of America was good. These documents were good. The idea that people that individuals were the basis for a free society. These were all good things. And then we could argue over marginal tax rates. We could even argue over slavery in that, you know, some people were abolitionists from day one. Some people f- felt it had to take more time. I'm not even making a judgment call on any of that. The point is, there were debates to be had about virtually everything. There were debates to be had about affirmative action and abortion and every issue in foreign policy, everything. But the the fundamental structure existed that it was like, oh, we all want to live in this thing. We all can somewhat agree to disagree. But that fundamentally changed with the rise of the woke progressives. And I was one of them. And I worked at the Young Turks, as you know. So I I get this thing intimately. I've, I've been to the belly of the beast. And they have wrought something on society. They have ushered something in that is very, very different than any movement that I've ever known in America which is this movement that is here to destroy. It is implicitly here to destroy the American project. So that means that you've either got these set of people and you're either one of them or you're the rest of us. So the difference, I think that's, that's really what you're asking. The, the difference is so stark right now. And that's why you know this. I have some disagreements with conservatives politically. It just does not matter anymore. Yep you know it really doesn't and and i think when the more of us that really grasp that that really go oh you know what there are there are these new sort of ex-liberal libertarians kind of coming around to conservatism and they're not great on abortion meaning that they're not necessarily all absolutely uh, pro life but you know they see that maybe 10 weeks 6 weeks 4 weeks whatever it is we can talk about that they see that there's something to discuss there it's like you want to be on the same side of those people. I want to be on the same side of, of you guys. And that's what we got to work with. And that's the fundamental split. And I think the people fleeing are realizing because it's so damn obvious. If you have a kid and they've locked your kid up, put them in a mask, told the boy that he's a girl, a girl that he's a boy and all of this other nonsense for two years. If you don't get it at this point, then uh, as Jerry said to George, good luck with all of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, look, it's really well said. I mean, quibbling about whether a marginal tax rate should be 28 or 26 percent is a conversation that can be had only after we agree that there are yeah. XY chromosomes and XX chromosomes, right, where we're not seeing yeah. like a biological male swimmer blow out a, an Ivy League swim race by 40 seconds or whatever. I mean, these basic foundational questions simply have to come first. If we, if we, if we can't agree on that, I mean, it's kind of, you know, a to go all out the window at that point.
0: Well, we've moved to a place where that is exactly what we're debating, at least in the sort of mainstream corporate version of whatever America is. We are watching this male. I think his name is Leah Thomas, a biological male, now a trans woman. We are watching he, she, whatever you want to say, absolutely demolish all of these female swimmers. You've seen the time lapse thing where it doesn't even look like they're in the same sport. It's going so fast. And it's like the feminists are applauding it. Oh, my God, this is the fastest female (laughs) swimmer of all time. And it's like, well, in that she's a man, I guess this is very (laughs) exciting. But we see this across everything. You know, we had the first what was it? The first highest earning female Jeopardy! champion a few weeks ago. And she was a man. I mean, intellect really has nothing to do with biological sex. So that one was just hilarious. But it's so consistent with the nonsense that they peddle with us every day so that you Things that we knew were true five years ago are suddenly up for debate. Let's not forget Rachel Levine, our first four star uh, health secretary, whatever it is. Our own surgeon general said that Rachel Levine, a biological male, was the first female four star health secretary, whatever. And it's like, no, you can say that he or she, whatever pronouns you want to use, is the first trans female four star health secretary. Okay, that's factual. You can't say that they're female. You can't say that they're female. And, and that's why they're they're breaking everything. Two plus two equals five. I just don't want to live in that world.
1: I think a lot of people do, right? So, I mean, like, let's think back to the conversation at the recent National Conservatism Conference, right? I mean, the one that you had with, uh, you know, our mutual friends, Douglas Murray, Yoram Hazoni, and Saurabh Bamari. And I think what we were trying to explore was whether we can get to the point where if you recognized wokeism, if you recognized that the identity politics, the intersectional, you know, hierarchy of victims, uh, the oppressed, the oppressor, if this new kind of, woke illiberal formulation is the new modern equivalent of like fighting the Soviet Union in the Cold War, can we all come together? And Dave, you answer that question, yes.
0: My belief is that we can, but that's tenuous at best. And it's going to take a lot of work, which I think is exactly why Yoram Hazoni, who put together a conference, wanted to have that discussion. It's like if we all see wokeism for what it is. And as I always tell people, you got to give it credit. You got to give the devil his due. Like this thing, whether you like what it's doing or not, has destroyed so much of the stuff that we just accepted as was going to be here forever. So you got to give it credit to that degree. But if we're going to get out of this thing, right, if we're going to fight this thing properly, you need everybody. So while, say, Douglas Murray, who I would consider a classical liberal in in the truest sense, obviously, he's a British intellect who... From a British perspective, I suppose he's more of a conservative. This is where the words all get a little screwy. Uh, but if a guy like him and a guy like Sora Amari, who comes from a more sort of Catholic traditionalist conservative view, if they can't agree that they want to live in the same country, then we have no chance anyway. So we were really trying to do work there. And the work that really it sort of boiled down to was, you know, what would happen in a, in a society that was, say, a little more traditional, in a society that returned to some of the religious roots, what would happen to the to the marginal people, meaning what would happen to the religious minorities, what would happen to the gays, et cetera, et cetera. It seems obvious to me that if America is going to continue in any way that this experiment has gone on for these years, that you have to find room for those people. Sorab actually seems a little less optimistic about that because he feels that the liberals will somehow ultimately cause the thing to collapse douglas i thought made some great points in that i mean in essence it's not as if if we did everything through a true catholic tradition it's not as if catholic institutions haven't failed miserably i mean you know look at the pre-scandals alone so so maybe institutions are all deemed to fail eventually but we gotta piece this thing together i i just think that if we don't if we really don't do that what comes after trump or what comes after biden or whatever this thing is is way, way worse than anything we know right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we had Michael Knowles on the last episode. You know, Michael and I used to work together at The Daily Wire, and we kind of had the same conversation. I mean, like, look, the, the woke left they They come at it with all they've got, okay they come out with all they've got. they have their vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful. It happens to be neither good nor true nor beautiful and <laughs> but besides that, but besides that, right, <laughs> and like we on the right, you know are, you know I, we're quibbling about defending ukraine's borders against Russia. I mean this is kind of getting to you know what our friend Dave Reboy says, like do you know what time it is, right? Do you actually know what time it is? so let's actually kind of just kick it over to you right on that note like because this phrase has become very popular like a segment of the online right i i very much am i use this phrase i think it's very apt to describe the situation that we're facing what does that mean to you like when someone like on like says like what time is it like how would you describe that the meaning of that
0: it's pretty damn close to dire i would say what time it is you know when dave sort of coined that phrase or started getting it out there it's like you know a broken clock is right twice a day And what we're seeing over the last two years is so many people who we thought were like pretty good on the issues, you know, that that basically got it, whether you agreed with them on everything or not. We're just watching them kind of disappear. I I can tell you that from my own personal experience, so many people who I considered really great thinkers of five years ago, just Trump broke so many people, COVID broke people all of the people now on mainstream media who are demanding that we all be locked down and put children in masks and get vaccinated. If Trump was president, would be demanding the exact reverse and saying this is Hitler demanding people be injected. I mean, don't take my word for it. Just read Joy Reid's tweets alone from when Trump was (laughs) still president, trying to get people vaccinated. Not that Joy Reid's a great barometer of anything because she's truly like psychotic. But uh, so many people broke down in terms of their ability to logically look at things that when you say to somebody like, do you know what time it is? It's like what you roughly have to get is that America's hanging on by a thread right now. The Western world is hanging on by a thread. As, as Jordan Peterson briefly mentioned in the Q&A last night when I brought it up about what's going on in Canada with the truckers, it's like, man, the world should be watching Canada right now, because if this monster that we're all fighting in the West has pushed the good people of Canada this far, then something is really wrong. So by what time it is, you best realize that the machine is out of control right now. It is threatened by Joe
1: Rogan. Let's kick into a quick break. We're with Dave Rubin and stay with us. We'll be right back. You're pretty red pill dude like you're pretty based. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to lie. Listen to the way, listen to the way you talk about what time it is. I mean like uh you know uh, fighting the enemy with all we've got. I'm paraphrasing and throwing words in your mouth a little bit here, but you know obviously you weren't always that way and you kind of allude to that. You know, you used to work with the Young Turks obviously and people who know you know about your background. You've written and spoken about this at great length, but what kind of were like the two or three kind of Pivotal events that you would say that kind of uh, opened your eyes to where this ship was headed on the left, and started to kind of bring you around to a saner, more sober view of the world. I guess we might say.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny. You know, I come from a liberal family, a liberal New York family, in the true sense of liberalism, meaning that there it was JFK. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Uh, It was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I'm from New York. He was a great senator for you know three decades in New York. Ed Koch, the mayor of New York City, that there were these old school liberals who basically didn't think the government was supposed to do everything. They actually talked about things like the Constitution and freedom and the purpose of America and all of those things. And really more than that, like things were allowed to be debated in my family. Every holiday, there was allowed to be at a giant table, you know, for everybody from grandpa on down to the five-year-old at the table arguing, screaming, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, dessert got served at the end and everybody was fine and we all went back home and then we do it again, you know, next week or next month or whatever it might be. Um, so then when I started getting more into politics publicly and I ended up on the Young Turks network, you know, the the progressives seemed to me to be liberals that were angrier, liberals that were more excitable. They they were screaming about everything, pounding the table. They were like basically liberals on steroids. And I think there was something very appealing to that. I think it's why it's worked for young people. They're outraged all the time. They're always fighting Nazis. Everyone they disagree with is, is evil. And they're morally right and they're righteous and all of those things. Now, of course, that sounds an awful lot like a cult. And yeah, it turned out to be one. (laughs) Uh, There were a couple moments that I realized. I mean, I would say, broadly speaking, it started to crack for me that I didn't find these people to be that bright, actually. And when we'd be talking about, you know, what somebody was saying on Fox News or how evil the Republicans are, it was like it was like it doesn't even make sense. Like the math equation doesn't make sense. Like, let me just get let me get this straight they're just Nazis and bigots and racists. And that is their, the totality of their worldview. You know, that's it for them. You though are just a good guy who wants to help people, whatever. They're just evil. And you're just good. Like that just was sort of the basic underpinning of what I started seeing. And then I can, I, I lay out actually a whole bunch of examples in the book, but one that I'll give you is that I was on air one day with the young Turks, about four other hosts on air. And we're playing a clip from Fox news and a guy by the name of David Webb, who I'm sure, you know, on the he's on the Sirius XM on the right channel. Uh, he's a conservative. He happens to be black. He was guest hosting for Hannity one day and he's talking about whatever he's saying. And we come back from the clip and my co-hosts are all talking about what an Uncle Tom he is and a sellout and he's not a real black guy and all this stuff. And what they didn't know is that years before I had a show on Sirius XM and I bumped into David one day in the hallway and we quickly started chatting and I was a lefty, but I used to go on a show once a week and we would argue about stuff. And then we'd go downstairs to Del Frisco's on 50th and Sixth. Then we'd have steaks and whiskey and we became great friends and still are great friends to this day. So I'm watching these purported, tolerant progressives call my friend and Uncle Tom and a sellout and he's doing it for the money and all of these awful things. And I'm, I'm looking at them. I mean, I literally remember looking like turning to my left and looking at them and thinking. You guys are the racists. You are the modern racist. David Webb is a good man who believes what he believes. He stakes out positions that are not easy for a black man to stake out mm. and has nothing to do with his with the color of his skin. He has taken all sorts of hits for that, been called all the worst things. And you people do it in the name of anti-racism, which, by the way, has completely permeated the left because, you know, we cover it on my show every week. If you watch these lunatics on The View every single day, Joy Behar, if she finds a black person that thinks anything different than she thinks a black person should think, she basically says they're a sellout. This is what she was calling Clarence Thomas a sellout this week. And, you know, he's not really black and he's against black voting rights and all this stuff. And it's like, man, you guys are the racist. I'd like to buy you
1: all a mirror. The, the Clarence Thomas thing is honestly just disgusting. I, I mean, we're talking here literally about, from my perspective, the single greatest living American, someone who grew up poor as, you know what, in the Jim Crow South, didn't even speak English growing. I mean, talk about like an incredible Rex Rich's story. I, I mean, like they say worse things about him, obviously, you know, they'll call, they'll call him an Uncle Tom and all that stuff. It's it, It's really just evil stuff. But I'm curious to what extent But they
0: do it in the name of tolerance. And that's what's so perverse about it. Right. So it's one thing to be like, like obvious racism of the past. You know, I don't like black people because of the color of their skin. I want them to drink from different water fountains. It's like, that's pretty freaking obvious. It's base. It's like you can just see it and that's it. This thing that they're doing is much more nefarious because it sounds good. He's not for black people. He must be some sort of a sellout because obviously if you for black people, you'd be for these voting rights bills. They never tell you what's in the voting rights bills or somehow. I mean, their implication is that black people don't know how to get an ID. I don't know any person, white or black or orange or pink, who does not know how to get an ID. It's the soft bigotry of low expectations, which is a, a phrase that most people credit to Bill Maher, actually, but believe it or not, it was from George W. Bush. That's right.
1: No, totally. So I actually, during the voter ID debate last year, I remember tweeting something about the, you know, quoting George W. Bush soft bigotry of low expectations. And it was, it was Jason Whitlock, you know, kind of the, you know, anti-PC black sports commentator who then quote tweeted me and said, there's nothing soft about this. This is just bigotry. Yeah. <laughs> there's, this is hard bigotry actually we're talking about here. But I, I want to go back to your story a little bit. So you obviously lived in Los Angeles. So, I mean, Los Angeles to me is kind of like a symbol of progressive decline. It was the crown jewel city in a lot of ways of America as recently as 20, 30 years ago. It really was not that long ago, obviously, right? But tell, tell us a little bit about like what you experienced in your time there. I and mean, you know, we've all heard kind of the anecdotal stories, those of us who have not lived there, about the homelessness and like the, you know, the fecal matter on the sidewalk and the needles and all this stuff. Is it as bad as... Those of us who have not lived there have heard in, in Los Angeles's defense. When people
0: talk about the fecal matter on the street, that's usually San Francisco. That's right. Not that's to right. Say that it's not happening in L.A., but a, that's a rare moment I get to defend L.A. Uh, look, I moved to L.A. in 2013. There's a reason people want to live in SoCal. The weather is great. It's 75 to 82 virtually every day. You know, there's no humidity. You're at the beach, Santa Monica, all the stuff. California as a state. I mean, it's so massive. What, it's the world's like sixth largest economy if it was a country in and of itself. You know, you got Napa, San Diego, like you got just this incredible geography and it's gorgeous and all of that stuff. You admit when you move there, you concede the fact that you will pay a lot in taxes. It's an exchange. There's a lot of goodness here. You also concede the fact that the houses are gonna cost more and a whole bunch of other stuff. But what you're supposed to get with that tax money is schools that work. You're supposed to get roads that work. You're supposed to have social services that make sense. And unfortunately, as the progressives demolished all of what I would say mostly you could say sort of old school liberals, but it was California conservatives built sort of Reagan conservatives built. And that was a thing at one time, right? Like, so if we were to, if this was 35 years ago, it's like, I'm a California conservative. That would make sense to me. If Ronald Reagan was selling the stuff of Ronald Reagan, really, when he was governor, but then into president, it's like, oh, that's the guy that I would very obviously be supporting right now, whatever, whatever you want to call that in 2022. Uh, But there was just a slide and, and the liberals don't know how to defend themselves from the progressive onslaught. So they love equality. To the point where it will tip over the edge, meaning you should be for equality, not for equity. That's that's the dividing line. You should be for equality of all people. Of course I am. I want everybody treated the same. I don't care about your gender or your sexuality or your skin color or your religion or any of those things. If you're a legal uh, member of this country, you should be treated equally. That's what liberals have historically fought for. That's what the ACLU fought for. But then when we got there and we got there, they could not accept that it was enough. And then they started doing this equity thing. And this brought in the neo-racism because then they said, wait a minute, we're all equal, but there still were things in the past that made people different. Thomas Sowell wrote a great book, uh, Discrimination and Disparities, to explain that just because that there are disparities doesn't mean it's necessarily due to discrimination. You know what I mean? There are disparities between, say, Asian-Americans and Indian-Americans. And I mean, Indian from India, who both score incredibly highly, but there's still disparities in the community. Is that because is America more racist, say, against Chinese people than Indians or Japanese people than Koreans? But broadly speaking, these are people who all work extremely hard, care about education, care about family and have succeeded. They've all suffered discrimination. You don't think uh, Koreans who moved here 40 years ago and opened convenience stores and blah, 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 had to suffer from discrimination. You don't think Irish people, suffered from discrimination or Jews or Italian. Everyone did. It's, it's, the, it's the American fabric. And then we fight through it. They could not accept equality. They wanted equity. And what you start seeing then is they do insane things in the name of tolerance such as, okay, because we see this disparity at schools, black children are scoring worse. It must be because of discrimination. There cannot be any other factor. So now we're going to remove standardized testing, or we're going to make it harder for white kids to get a job or get into school, or Harvard's going to discriminate against Asian people. This is what the left has wrought. So Jason Whitlock is correct. It is not soft. I would say it's pernicious, which is much more dangerous in a way. That's what I'm saying. It's like, The obvious racism of you can't go to that water fountain. It's like we can all see it. We know what it is. You don't have to think about it too hard. This thing. Oh, well, there were historic injustices. So we do want to help young black people. Well, okay, I can get on board that at some level. But if you mean that to help young black people, you must punish a young white kid who works very hard. What have you done other than figured out a new way to be racist? I would argue nothing.
1: No, it's well said. I mean, I mean, it's very easy, I think, for the listeners to see why that would have like the red pilling effect on you that that it clearly had seeing that in real time. But let's take it back to the Also, These
0: people weren't very nice. I mean, that's really the (laughs) truth, too. Just one more thing on that. Like they weren't that nice. I mean, one of the things that's really been amazing to me as I've sort of entered these conservative circles, conservatives are much nicer and much happier and look much better and stand up straight and comb their hair. (laughs) It's just true. It's just true. And that's not disconnected. Like from Jordan, That's say like Jordan identity. Peterson
1: 101, right? To like stand up straight that's, and comb your hair. That's JP
0: 101. Hair. But look, you were there last night and Raboy, who you mentioned earlier, he tweeted out like he said, this is the best looking crowd he's ever seen in Miami. It's like it doesn't I don't mean that at the purely superficial level of, oh, these people look good. But there is a connection between believing in personal responsibility and say going to the gym and say uh, eating right or Walking around, getting sun. I mean, we're, we in, we're in a place, Miami, I think it's the most fit city in the United States, they say. They yeah. also say it's the happiest city in the United States. But but those things are not disconnected. So I don't mean to make it about the superficial version of it. But as Jordan said last night, there are many of you here wearing suits tonight. Where else right now? If you go to Broadway, I don't even know the Broadway's open in New York anymore. But if you go to Broadway, people are showing up in sweatpants and in uh, shorts. Now, that's not in and of itself terrible. It's not. But... It does say something. So the idea last night, I dressed well. I thought, hey, I'm opening for Jordan. I'm gonna dress well. Jordan in, a, in an awesome three-piece suit. You look out in the crowd, everyone's dressed right. They look good, they're there to live the ideas. That's pretty cool.
1: What the hell happens next, right? I mean, as far as, far as I'm concerned, I, 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 and I'm curious for your feedback, I see basically four options. One is the status quo. However, we want to define this. And I don't even, I don't even know what I would describe this as. It's like weird kind of stasis where we all kind of hate each other, but we're not actively fighting. The status quo continues. Two is we have some sort of like legitimate national figure, like a like a new like Lincoln figure to truly like unify the country under some conception of the good um very obviously difficult to see who that might be right now it's possible that person hasn't even been born yet if we still survive three is like we radically rediscover federalism like you know states do their own thing that would take like a supreme court like constitutional revolution of sorts then four of course is kind of the you know the black pill option of, na- of national divorce which is exactly what it sounds like for those who are not familiar with it it's like an amicable splitting of the states you know, I'm born on Lincoln's birthday. The lattermost option is certainly not one I'm 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 hoping for, uh, to put it mildly. But um, uh, am I missing an option there? Are those really like the four that we're dealing with? And what's your If, yeah. you, if you if if you were betting, man, if you were in Vegas, kind of the MGM Grand, placing a wager on one of these, what's where's your money going?
0: Yeah, so I'll go through each one real quick, and then I'll tell you which one I think is probably the best chance. I mean, the status quo one, that one sort of is probably if you were just like a better with without much risk in your life, that's the one you go for. That will just sort of continue to be in this devolution and slow descent into the thing that we all know is wrong, but nobody really is going to do anything about it. And it's just entropy and, and things are just going to devolve. So that, that would be the, the probably the safest bet because that's just the way human history is. You know, there's only brief moments where you get the good people to stand up and, and there's you know, those moments when the Titanic, it's about to hit the freaking thing and the guy wakes up, you know, while it's, there's still time to, to, you know, change course. The new Lincoln idea, well, of course, that would be a great idea in a sort of utopian sense that there would be somebody that, you know, most of us could look at and say, this is the guy, this is the guy that makes sense. I mean, I think in some ways, a lot of people thought perhaps not my conservative friends, but the the, sort of mainstream version of that was that Obama was that guy, that this hope and change thing would really change the course of America. And Obama turned out to be deeply, deeply divisive. And I would argue that now he's, you know, really the driving, his ideas are the driving force behind Biden, because it certainly ain't coming from, you know. Joe Biden's brain. Uh, So I don't think we're at that point yet. I don't think things have gotten bad enough where where enough people would shed the differences to say, okay, let's find this guy. And I also just don't know who that guy would be at this point. So I think that one has a small likelihood. Uh, The separate in a positive way. So the sort of federalism idea, I think I'm very bullish on that one in that I'm living it right now. I am in a completely different country by being in Florida than I was in California. It's, It's extraordinarily different. Uh, the, the joy and the, the ability to live to your potential in a place that does not want to rule over you is extraordinary. And people forget what it's like when they're in those other places for too long. So if the states really started separating and then this is the segue to the to the separate and a negative one. the the Black Bill one that you mentioned, if the states really separate and can leave each other alone, I think we're good to go. We really are. We can figure out how to, you know, disassemble the federal system, or not the federal system, but the federal government as much as possible so that the states that are doing it right, if you want to live there, you can live there, but you got to obey the laws. And if you want to live in the blue states, I mean, good luck with all that. Now, the negative version, so you're number four, is that there will be some sort of separation But that will ultimately lead to some kind of civil war or breaking up of the United States or something like that. I think that there's a lot of unfortunate energy there because the difference between people on the left and people on the right, basically speaking, is people in Florida do not care what happens in California right now. They really don't. They have decided this is where I live. This is what I care about. Let's let's move forward in life. However, the blue states ain't going to stop. There is nothing we can do. They own too much of the media, too much of the concentration of power, and they will resent the success of the red states. They will resent that there are places where people still smile and they will they will basically be a low grade civil war where they're going to keep doing all of the bad policies. And then what will happen is they'll get bailed out by the federal government. I mean, this is just what happened, actually, in the last year and a half with covid relief packages. States that did it right with low taxes ended up footing the bill for morons like Gavin Newsom to run all his pet projects that all became failures in California. And then you're going to have the average Floridian go, wait a minute, why am I, Who I do it right? I live my life right. I vote the right way. Why is any of my tax money going afloat? These guys are doing it all wrong. So there's a lot of energy to that one. Like just like a national resentment sort of thing. I'm going to do my best to make sure that three is the winner that the States can separate in a, in a positive way but we can still remain in the United States and that we can have a national border and hopefully we can do our best to show the people in the blue states that there's a better way of doing this. It's, it's harder. You know, it would be much easier just to be like, you know what? I live in Florida, screw these guys and that's it. But that will, it will put us in an intractable cold war with people that, our countrymen and that's no good
1: yeah look if I'm trying to find the sweet spot as to what I would root for and to what is remotely plausible I think option three like radical federalism probably is the best answer so I think you and I are on the same page on that one but yeah We're out of time here. So, Dave, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you last night, as always, and hope to do it again soon.
0: I'm going to get you on tequila. As you know, this is my mission (laughs) in life, that all of my new conservative friends only drink whiskey. I find it very boring. Let's get you people on some tequila and see what happens. Oh, man.
1: Tequila and I have a complicated history involving one not so fun night in Acapulco, Mexico. But that's that's for an an off camera conversation. (laughs) All right. Good seeing you, brother. Good seeing you, man. You know, I've seen Dave enough recently over the past month and a half or so. I mean, you kind of heard that out of his podcast. I mean, he is a—he's a different man. I mean, that's not to say that he was obviously depressed as recently as a year or two ago. I'm sure he was not. He's a happy-go-lucky kind of guy and lives a great life. But you can kind of just hear in his voice, just the way he talks, kind of like the confidence and this and the swagger. And I found that myself. I mean, look, I think a lot of us who have kind of making that decision, the one that Dave has made to kind of uproot and relocate from highly taxed, kind of highly locked down, vaxxed, mandated, you know, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, whatever style, you know, blue states who have kind of uprooted ourselves and moved to bastions of sanity, of relatively sane taxation, you know, not having to mask up anytime you walk into the supermarket. It really does, at kind of a fundamental level, just affect your livelihood and like affect your happiness. And to kind of tie that together with what we were talking about at the end of our conversation there with Dave Rubin as well here, it seems so obvious that the happier you are when you are able just to kind of smile and like see strangers in in the supermarket, on the sidewalk or the gym or whatever, and not have a frown on your face those kind of micro one-on-one interactions, if you kind of aggregate that and add it up, is necessarily going to lead to a higher likelihood of the country staying together, right? This is a conversation that is really getting out there into the mainstream. And it's a conversation that has to happen because if you want to forestall the worst possible option, you need to start thinking about what kind of actual steps you might need to take in your individual life, what kind of steps you might need to take in kind of your associational and civic life to ultimately preclude this from happening here. So one other thing that Dave is, is at the center of here, he, he's really kind of the tip of the spear of trying to drive this new this new center-right coalition of sorts, this anti-woke coalition, a coalition that kind of ex- exists to revolve around confronting the threat of identity politics. And this fundamentally is the issue that is going to tear us apart if we don't kind of all unite to stand athwart it. So Dave is very much at the forefront of that. And I, I obviously am as well. And we're working hand in hand to try to, Get a coalition together to defeat wokeism in the name of the American common good. I'm Josh Hammer. You can subscribe anywhere you find your podcasts, and we'll see you next time.